0: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Book Network's History Channel. Today, we're going to be discussing The Constitutional Origins of the American Civil War, out earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. The author is Michael F. Conlin. He's professor of history at Eastern Washington University. Welcome to the show, Professor Conlin.
1: Thank you so very much for having me.
0: So before we uh, dive into the uh, Questions? Can you discuss a little bit about your uh, selection of the cover image for the book?
1: Ah, uh, yes, it's a kind of an iconic image by Carrier and Ives of the uh, Massachusetts Fifty Fourth storming Fort Wagner, and so it's uh, it pits uh, African American soldiers fighting Southern secessionists um, in you know perhaps the most secessionist state, South Carolina.
0: Now, what prompted you to study the Fed?
1: And so it seemed uh, it, it seemed like a uh, apropos. Uh, way to, you know, show the the uh, the book's argument of linking the
0: Constitution and and uh, the Civil War. Thanks. Now, what prompted you to study the Federal Constitution as quote more or less neutral, yet implemented in a pro-slavery fashion? And what do you mean by ordinary Americans and popular constitutionalism? And why did you organize the book thematically rather than chronologically?
1: Well, I study the Constitution is more or less uh, neutral um, just because I think the, a lot of the leading scholarship suggests um, that, um, you know, that the, there are parts, of course, of the Constitution that supported slavery. And and we'll cover those, I think, in some detail. The book, of course, does. Um, <clears throat> but there are other parts that uh, have great promise for anti-slavery. Um, and the Constitution, uh, it, it was far more uh Pro slavery in its implementation, uh, than the the mere text. And uh, Don Fahrenbacher's uh, book uh, makes this argument. So does Earl uh, Maltz. Um, and and so, anyway, that's the. Uh, and, and I think you'll see when you when we talk about the book, and the listeners will see uh, hear this as well, uh, that there was a lot of the, a lot of ways the Constitution could have been, uh, the practice of the Constitution uh, could have been far less pro slavery than it actually was. Um, And the book focuses on ordinary Americans um, and popular constitutionalism uh, just to show that uh, this wasn't a conceit of of elites. Um, I define ordinary Americans in a somewhat uh, idiosyncratic way uh, because this is uh, concerning the Constitution. And so I don't define ordinary Americans uh, versus elite Americans in terms of social class, but more... Uh, but actually, in in regards to their familiarity with the uh, Constitution, and I, I take this uh, take my page from Michael Kamen, uh who had a who first made this distinction uh, in a brilliant book on the on popular constitutionalism, and uh, published about I guess two or three decades ago. Uh, but anyway, the the idea is that um, um, most Americans, even Americans who went to university, even Americans who were lawyers, uh, did not have extensive training. And constitutional law um, today, you know, it's quite a common thing in political science and history courses for undergraduates to have training in, in the Constitution, um, and certainly in, in, in law school. But this is uh, this was not so in the in the U.S. in the 1840s and 50s. In fact, there were just a very few uh, law schools. Most most American lawyers were uh, trained by reading law, like Abraham Lincoln uh, and Stephen A. Douglas did, and so uh, in that way, they they had no Real exposure uh, to constitutional law, and I define elites as people who uh, either taught constitutional law or who held a nation, or statewide or, or national office, um, as an effort to tease, uh, t- to tease out, um, or people who actually went to law school, even though they often didn't have a, a course in uh, in constitutional law. And popular constitutionalism, quite simply, is the is looking at how. We the people, the American people, um, interpreted the Constitution, read the Constitution, and one of the arguments in my book is that um, antebellum Americans uh, had a pretty sophisticated knowledge of some very recondite uh, provisions of the Constitution. Uh, For example, the Guarantee Clause, clauses that uh, bits of the Constitution that most Americans today are only vaguely aware of, or frankly aren't aware of at all, and really are only known to, to specialists. Um, and I organized the book thematically, uh, just because I, uh, I, I try to I look at the interpretations of the Constitution uh, by the American people, North and South, Black and White, um, elite and non-elite, as more or less static during this period, um, and and I try to to follow. Various threads of, um, of, of, of elements of this popular constitutionalism, they don't so much evolve over time, but, but are kind of organized um, uh, in these various themes, many of which actually relate to the Constitution itself, the structure of the Constitution, the practice of the Constitution, and the implementation of the Constitution.
0: How and why did most antebellum Americans celebrate the federal constitution as, quote, civil gospel? And how did the memory of anti-slavery, pro-slavery, and or silent framers and their constitutional euphemisms shape antebellum sectional divisions, anti-slavery factionalism, and the arguments of northern conservatives?
1: Well, um, antebellum Americans were really quite proud that theirs was the first uh, written constitution. Um, they took great pride in that, they, they uh, loved contrasting their, uh, their what they called the model republic and it was a model constitutional republic with um, governments around the world uh, including, uh, you know, and often it was an invidious comparison, often the, uh, they, they took it as unquestioned that the United States was the freest nation uh, in the world um, and they did so of course even though uh, slavery was an incredibly important part of our political, economic, and social system. They, they frequently made uh, contrast with the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, various uh, European empires, the Habsburgs, the Bourbons, um, and, of course, with, uh, even with England, or I should say the UK, um, they, uh, of course, which uh, in some ways our system is a, uh, has a direct line to, they noted that the, Britain has an unwritten constitution, whereas we have a, a written one. And they noted that the, Britain had the House of Lords and, of course, still does um and and Britain, even with its great reform act of uh, eighteen thirty two uh enfranchised a tiny fraction of the uh, British male population vis-a-vis uh, the United States during the period of so-called Jacksonian democracy and for all these reasons, then Americans um almost all Americans, really the garrisonian abolitionists were the only exception, lauded the Constitution uh, as a as a charter of liberty um and and they celebrated it in ways that I think we you know, we often reserve today for uh, the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence. Uh, there were public readings of the Constitution. Uh, there were technical books that uh, gave uh, extended analyses of every clause of the Constitution, um, and there were even some public celebrations where people paraded and 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 lauded the Constitution. And as far as the uh, you know the founders, not only did the Annabelle Americans follow the you know know the Constitution with quite an impressive sophistication, uh, they also knew a lot about the lives and deeds and the actions of the various founders. You know the fifty five delegates uh, to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of seventeen eighty seven, um, and they were um, uh, they anxiously awaited uh, uh, efforts of uh, various people to publish the notes. Or records of the of the convention, they were especially for particularly controversial bits of the Constitution, say the fugitive slave clause, for example, or the three fifths clause. Uh, they were quite well aware of the debates uh, in Philadelphia over the the merits or demerits of, of those clauses, um, and um, um, and many of the especially uh, when it came to the matters of the of the, the, the sectional conflict over slavery. Um, you know, m- many of the uh, people in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s took their cues from, um, from uh, founders that they believed uh, followed their uh, beliefs or that they, uh, perhaps sometimes doing violence to the actual history, uh, claimed, well, followed their views. For example, uh, almost everyone claimed uh, James Madison. He was the father of the Constitution. He was the single most influential delegate And even though he was a lifelong uh, Virginia slaveholder, um, even uh, all but the most radical abolitionist, uh, the Garrisonians, claimed him as as, uh, either a proto-abolitionist or a dedicated, uh, positive, good advocate of slavery and everything uh, in between.
0: How and why did the economic contours of early disputes over constitutional construction and individual rights focus on chattel slavery and then exacerbate sectional divisions? Also, why was the guarantee clause crucial in these antebellum debates? And how did this clause demonstrate the depths of popular knowledge of the federal constitution? Um, The, uh, you
1: know, just as they uh, quarreled over the, Proper interpretation or or construction, if you like, of the Constitution and various clauses, um, or, or the various founders, they also quarreled over the various uh, proper constructions. And a lot of those debates are would be very uh, familiar to our ears today. There were certainly, uh, although they didn't necessarily call themselves this, originalists. Uh, there were textualists. Uh, there were advocates of a living Constitution. Those are the main uh, the main schools. Um, and they were very much present in the 1830s 40s uh, and 50s and of course uh, you know debates over uh, slavery quickly came uh, to focus on individual rights the the right to property to process uh, we, we find the fifth uh, uh, in the due process clause and, and the Fifth amendment um, and of course the right to individual liberty um, and and so uh, you know slavery was uh as it was, of course was a a social institution um, or a, and a, an arrangement, but also as an economic uh, arrangement. And white southern slaveholders very much uh, considered slaves to be first and foremost property. Um, uh, and and it was uh, before the Civil War, most Americans believed the Tenth Amendment expressly put the uh, put the institution of slavery. Uh, beyond the reach of the federal government it was one of those so-called delegated powers that the states had not uh, uh had not given to the federal government that 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 attitude would change once the war began and eventually would culminate in in Abraham Lincoln's emancipation proclamation and ultimately in the th- uh passage and ratification of the 13th amendment in December 1865 um but this was uh, uh the these different uh disparate views of uh, how to interpret the Constitution um, you know came to focus on on slavery. Now the, the disparate views on how to interpret the Constitution uh, as regard to economic matters appeared quite early, you know as early as the debate over whether it was permissible to have Congress establish a national bank uh, in the, just a couple years after the Constitution was ratified during the administ- first term of the Washington administration. And even at that early date, we see some of the framers, the founders, Alexander Hamilton, saying it was permissible and, and James Madison, um, famously saying it wasn't. Uh, we see these debates over the uh, interpretation of the Constitution uh, from the very people who wrote it, uh, not even you know, not even half a dozen years after it was ratified. Um, and, and these my book just looks at the issues of slavery. Um, it doesn't uh, delve into these uh, wider-ranging uh, issues, you know, the issues of slavery um, and, and the issues that lead us to uh, to the Civil War. But uh, but it absolutely um, uh, sh- shapes their uh, sh- shapes the sectional conflict. And and quite famously, if you look at the original Constitution, the found, what I call the Founders' Constitution, you'll see the words slavery, slaveholder, slave, slaves don't appear uh, in the in the text. And that was by design. Uh, James Madison used euphemisms uh, instead of those words for slavery and slaveholder. Uh, And he did so because he didn't want to mar the text of the Constitution with those words. He hoped slavery would be ephemeral, um, and he purposely uh, uh, convinced the drafters of the Constitution uh, to leave those words out. Uh, and that allowed some uh, abolitionists, I think, sometimes uh, opportunistically or even cynically, to claim that the slavery wasn't even countenanced by the Constitution, um, and uh, and it, it forced uh, defenders of of slavery to uh, you know to unpack that and explain how and why the Constitution certainly did um, uh, in several cases uh, the three fifths clause, the fugitive slave clause, and the international slave trade clause certainly. Uh, impact uh, slavery, and in uh, many cases, um, protect, defend, and perpetuate slavery. And uh, Northern conservatives, uh, given the uh, epithet doe face, usually Democratic, but a few Whigs, um, uh, often supported white Southerners uh, on in their interpretations of the Constitution and in their protection of slavery. They often regarded this as their constitutional duty uh to do so um and and so uh you know the constitution really helps to uh is really part of these uh of the sectional conflict over slave the political conflict over slavery and helps to uh, p- helps to shape how people sort themselves out uh, in that conflict
0: so on that note, how did the idea of a federal ban on the international slave trade, entwined with an ending to chattel slavery, persist into the antebellum period for both pro-slavery and anti-slavery proponents, and what were arguments perhaps offered for the opposite? Also, what was the significance and insignificance of slave trade revivalism as well as its symbolism both in both the North and the South?
1: Well, there was um, uh, in 1787, um, uh, ten of the thirteen states had actually banned the international slave trade themselves, um, and it was widely regarded as a a barbarity, even by people who were perfectly happy to drive slaves in their own cotton fields or rice paddies. Um, and and so, when the issue came before the Constitutional Convention. Um, it seemed at first blush like that would be a very uh, straightforward matter to have the fe- give empower the federal government to ban something that had already been banned by ten of the thirteen states, uh, and the three states that hadn't done so were South Carolina, North Carolina, um, and Georgia. But as it turned out, um, both anti-slavery founders and pro-slavery founders believed um, that the constant importation of slaves from uh, either uh, Africa itself or from um, uh, uh, other parts of the Americas that practiced slavery was absolutely necessary to the maintenance of the slave system, and that was actually true for the vast majority of the slave systems in the New World. Um, but it was not true um, for the system in uh, the United States. The United States, uh, uh, in the early, relatively early in the colonial era, I think around the 1740s, 1750s, established a more or less equal sex ratio between female and male slaves. And that allowed uh, the state slave population to st- be stabilized by a natural increase rather than importation. Uh, but the founders weren't aware of this. And so they believed that to ban the federal slave trade or to have a federal ban on the slave trade, international slave trade, would would be to end slavery in the United States. That eventually it would just uh, um, cease to exist. All the slaves would, in essence, either uh, die, would die off if they hadn't been liberated or freed themselves. Um, And of course, it didn't turn out that way. But that's that's part of what made that debate so fraught, Um, and that's where we get the rather curious uh, compromise that the international slave trade clause has. Uh, What it does is it allows uh, states to import slaves until twenty years after the ratification of the Constitution. Um, If Congress chose to, you know, Congress could uh, Congress uh, after twenty years could pass some kind of regulation. Everyone knew Congress was going to pass a law that would, in fact, ban. Uh, the federal slave trade. Um, um, but in those 20 years until then, s- states were free to uh, import new slaves. And South Carolina in particular um, imported uh, the better part of 80,000 slaves from 1788 to January 1st, 1808. Um, and uh, and to John, Thomas Jefferson was president in 1807, Uh, He, to his great credit, convinced that was the leading force. Uh, In fact, I argue that's his greatest anti-slavery contribution. Uh, He he, uh, uh, forced his party, which had majority in both the House and the Senate, to take up and pass uh, the uh, the federal ban on the the federal slave trade or the international slave trade. Um, And. Uh, In the 1850s, there started to be proponents of reviving the slave trade, and this was kind of a logical extension of the positive good uh, defense of slavery. Um, The premise was that if uh, slavery was uh, a benefit not just to the master but also to the slave, him or herself, then the slave trade itself uh, was a a beneficial institution, a, a beneficial process and should be encouraged. Um, and the the strange structure of the of the slave trade clause allowed both abolitionists uh, and advocates of of uh, uh, and, and critics of the Constitution uh, claiming uh, to, to take credit the uh, pro, pro-slavery uh, the abolitionists the garrisonians who criticized the Constitution as being pro-slavery noted that uh, the Constitution for 20 years allowed the, the, the barbarity of the Islamic slave trade to to commence and that's absolutely true but the proponents of the anti-slavery constitution say but after that it absolutely forbids it and a few years later i think it's 1819 1820 congress passes a law making flying the slave trade if you're an american an act, uh, an act of piracy uh, with a potential capital uh sentence and um and, and so anyway it's a uh, uh, it's just one of those uh it's, many clauses of the Constitution were taken this way by advocates of slavery or opponents of slavery, and then of course the Garrisonians were their own little subset. But of of you know the the actual text of the Constitution and the practice of the Constitution allowed uh, there to be multiple you know sometimes quite disparate interpretations of of the of, of the how the Constitution acted, and that gets back to your original question about how it's uh, more or less neutral but implemented in a pro-slavery fashion.
0: Thank you. How and why did the 1842 Prig decision and the Compromise of 1850, including reauthorization of the Fugitive Slave Act, propel sectional divisions, slave power rhetoric, as well as Northern conservatism? In addition, what were the ensuing, quote, personal liberty laws and those rescue commemorations, and how did they galvanize debates over sustaining the rule of law?
1: Uh,
0: excellent questions.
1: Um- Prig versus Pennsylvania was a, a case that concerned uh, the rendition of a fugitive slave um, who had taken refuge in uh, Pennsylvania, um, and a, a slaveholder um, hired a man named Prig to go into Pennsylvania and take back uh, a female slave and her children, who, although they'd been born in the free state of Pennsylvania due to... Um, state and and uh, law and and federal policy were, were slaves by virtue of being born to a slave mother um, and uh, this was a the most important um, case uh, when it concerned fugitive slaves um, <clears throat> and at the time the the federal government had passed and George Wa- or Congress had passed and George Washington had signed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and so that was the operative um, Um, Law, all these were efforts to implement the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution, um, which uh, gives it as a a duty of states for comedy, interstate comedy, C O M I T Y, to return to the state of origin of fugitive slaves just as they would return a state of origin a fugitive from justice. Um, And in Prick versus Pennsylvania, Joseph Story, the leading exponent. Of the Constitution in the antebellum era, uh, by far the most famous justice, also the author Supreme Court justice, also the author of uh, of a slew of uh, best selling books about the Constitution um, drafted uh, the the prig decision, and that upheld um, the uh, the right of the slaveholder to go into Pennsylvania into a free state uh, despite the fact there were some personal liberty laws at that time. Uh, passed t- trying to protect the rights of of, of fugitive slaves. Uh, the the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 put the onus on the slaveholder to return his or her slave. Uh, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which was passed as part of the Compromise of 1850, put the onus on the federal government to assist the slaveholder. And for that reason, then, the federal uh, f- fugitive sl- slaveholders who alleged that, alleged that they had a... A, a slave that had freed him or herself could actually get the help of federal marshals to, uh, to detain and then uh, try to return their, their slaves. And the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 denied alleged fugitives all due process protections. They weren't permitted to give testimony. They weren't prote- uh, allowed to cross-examine their accuser. They weren't allowed to have uh, presumption of innocence. They weren't allowed to have the assistance of counsel. Uh, all law all rights of course enshrined in our bill of rights, part of the constitution and so after prig and especially after uh the compromise of eighteen fifty uh the most of the free states passed uh a slew of personal liberty laws, sometimes three or four apiece before the outbreak of the civil war uh conform conform um, uh, conferring upon alleged fugitives these various due process protections, including the assistance of counsel, the assumption of innocence, the right to give testimony, the right to um, uh, to cross examine their accusers, that sort of thing and um, and also the some radical abolitionists took it in their uh, into their hands to free alleged fugitives. And, and in fact, the most famous ones, of course, almost all of them, in fact, were ac- actually proper uh, fugitives. Um, and and this, of course, uh, uh, they used violence uh, in, uh, in the case of Anthony Burns, for example, in uh, Boston in 1854, uh, even uh, leading to the death of one of the guards. Um, and this led to great recrimination um, among conservative Northerners and certainly white Southerners uh, about uh, the absence of law and order, the defiance of the Constitution, of constitutional obligations, um, and, uh, and was, uh, you know, helped to erode the confidence that White Southerners had that the Constitution really was um, as protective as they thought it would be. Now, it turns out that the Constitution, as I think we'll discuss a little bit later in, in this interview, was an incredible protection to slavery, and of course, the issue of uh, fugitive slaves was a tiny, tiny uh, issue for all for sl- southern slaveholders, except for those on the on the border South, you know, in Maryland and Kentucky, um, uh, and and it was not a, a big concern in the in the deep South. It was very much uh, a marginal issue, but it was it had great symbolic uh, symbolic importance uh the The idea was that this was a constitutional obligation that the North had uh, when it agreed to uh, ratify the Constitution to join uh, the union um, and that the North clearly was not living up to this obligation uh, There was a brilliant book uh, done in the nineteen sixties that looked at uh, all three hundred or so cases of fugitive slaves uh that were uh, remand or were captured and considered under the fugitive slave act of 1850s auspices and found that 93% were in fact uh, returned to slavery. Um, and so that these, these rescues and jury nullifications in some cases were incredibly rare and were very much went against the grain of the, of the flow, but they were of course publicized by, um, uh, states rights advocates and, um, Southern extremists and helped to form, um, you know, a real sense of of grievance among white Southerners that the North was not living up to its constitutional obligations, that it was defying uh, the Constitution. That if they didn't couldn't trust them on this, what else could they? What else were they going to do to try to undermine slavery? Um, and all this compounds with the South's feeling of being a besieged white Southerners, slaveholders' feeling of being a besieged minority um, in the uh, in the system. Uh, set up by the Constitution, which I think we'll we'll speak uh, uh, about quite
0: soon. How how and why did state parity in the Senate help Southerners prevent the North from gaining a majority in the Senate and, along with the three-fifths compromise, keep the South competitive in presidential elections? Also, how were pro-slavery and conservative Northerners fears of western free soil linked to an anti-slavery amendment and why did much debate center over delaware washington dc and that gag rule
1: as i say in the senate was uh, far more important than the three-fifths clause in protecting the, the southern minority from quote the tyranny of the northern majority unquote white southerners in the 18 actually going all the way back to the 1780s but certainly in the 1830s 40s and 50s when the sectional conflict over slavery uh, became incredibly hot and intense and vitriolic, uh, worried about Northern northern tyranny, in other words, about the North using its numerical majority to use our democratic system, the constitutional system, to impose regulations on slavery and possibly ultimately uh, anti-slavery or our abolition amendments. Uh, for example, efforts to curb the domestic slave trade, Uh, efforts to impose uh, a gradual emancipation program on slaves, Uh, efforts to just uh, immediately abolish slavery. There were a whole host of uh, fears. And so white Southerners were really uh, worried about the North using its numerical advantage um, in the House uh, to pass legislation, anti-slavery or abolitionist legislation. Uh, They were worried about the North using its uh, majority in the Electoral College to elect anti-slavery presidents. Um, And they came to rely on parity in the Senate as it's their most effective bulwark against this, quote, tyranny of the Northern majority, unquote. Parity in the Senate, quite simply, was the idea of maintaining the number of free states to be equal to the number of slave states. Uh, And that way, uh, this uh, South could ensure that the North would never have, uh, no matter how large the North's majority in the House might be, no matter how anti-slavery a president might be, the South could ensure that anti-slavery legislation would never uh, make it to the president's desk. Anti-slavery legislation would die in the Senate. Um, And the process of Perry in the Senate, which I think is is worthy of its own in-depth study, frankly, um, uh, it begins at least as early um, as as, uh, the 1790s. um, And you will see if you look at the dates of admission, that states are carefully balanced and calibrated. Um, uh, the, uh, the if a, usually it's a free state that's admitted first, and then a counterbalancing slave state. But that's not always uh, the case. Um, and Perry and the Senate ensured then. Um, and this process goes all the way up to eighteen fifty, and it's uh, only uh, with the admission of California as a as a a free state in 1850 that upsets parity in the Senate. Um, White Southerners had expected, uh, and in fact most Americans had expected California to be divided into two states, uh, Northern California a free state, Southern California a slave state, and Californians, not for the uh, last time, defied and surprised uh, national expectations by coming in as one massive uh, free state. And this, uh, as it turned out, ended Perry in the Senate. Now, uh, that wasn't, of course, immediately uh, known, and white Southerners cast about trying to restore Perry in the Senate. Uh, they did so in several ways. One, they tried to cut California in half, um, they tried to make, uh, carve out a, a, a part of South California that could be a slave state. They also tried to make uh, Utah and New Mexico into slave states uh, through popular sovereignty, and of course, that failed. Uh, they also engineered the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, which was simply a piece of legislation passed by Congress and signed into law by President James Monroe. Um, And they tried then, and that, of course, allowed the possibility of slavery in the remnants of the Louisiana Purchase, and they tried to make famously make Kansas into a slave state, uh, which led to bleeding Kansas in the 1850s. And all these efforts failed, uh, but that was why the South was so... Concerned about the westward expansion of slavery, I argue that that's, that's far more important than uh, soil uh, erosion uh, and leaching of, of nutrients in uh, in the eastern seaboard southern states. That's far more important. The uh, westward expansion of slavery turned out to be the, the immediate, uh, most pressing political issue um, that causes the Civil War. The Democratic Party splits over the westward expansion of slavery. The Republican Party forms over the westward expansion of slavery. Of course, the Republican Party opposes the admission of new slave states. Um, the Democratic Party divides into a part of the Democratic Party that wants uh, in 1860 that wants a federal slave code. In other words, all slavery to be in all the Western territories. The Northern Democrats, uh, led by Stephen A. Douglas in the election of 1860, uh, favor um, uh, national, or I should say popular sovereignty. In other words, allowing the residents of the territories themselves to decide whether they're slave states or not. Uh, And this issue, this incredibly important issue, the westward expansion of slavery, has its import because of parity in the Senate. Everyone realized uh, that parity in the Senate was uh, this huge bulwark protecting slavery. Abolitionists who hoped to pass an anti-slavery amendment uh, realized that they had an incredibly steep hill to climb because they had to get two-thirds of each House of Congress to approve an anti-slavery amendment. And then they had to get three-quarters of the states. and uh, this would prove to be an incredibly high bar. In fact, it was only surmounted because of the Civil War and, and the disruption of, uh, of, of national politics. And I argued that the, the parity in the Senate was such an incredible uh, protection for white, Southern, white Southerners' uh, practice of slavery uh, that I note that even today in our Union of 50 States, that if all 15 slave states had refused to assent uh, to, the, to the 13th Amendment, it would not have passed even today. Uh, we would need to have 60 states and the other 45 free and supporting it. And, and so uh, white Southerners, in their efforts to secede, uh, tr- uh, from their point of view, tragically miscalculate about, uh, they don't realize just what an effective bulwark uh, parody in the Senate and the incredible difficulty we have in amending our Constitution uh, were for the protection of slavery. Um, and i should note that our constitution uh is uh, among if not, uh the most difficult to amend in the world or perhaps the most difficult to amend uh in the world and so um, the the uh, parity in the senate then was an incredible uh protection uh to white southerners um, and uh, added to this was uh, the uh, and of course, that's an implementation of the Constitution, right? That uh, period in the Senate not required by the Constitution. Uh, was also uh, another part of this was the uh, two-party system. Um, the two-party system, uh, which was, uh, you know, imposed on, uh, was highly likely to be brought about because of our in, uh, first past the post or winner-take uh, uh, winner-take-all system of uh, of. of of politics uh, in single-member electoral districts, all those things strongly tend towards, uh, according to Dervinger's law, uh, towards a a strong two-party system. Um, What that meant was that uh, both the first political party system between the Democratic-Republicans and the Federalists and then later the second one between the Whigs and the Democrats, the national parties tried to evade the issue of slavery because they wanted to appeal to voters in the North and the South uh, Non-slaveholding voters and slaveholding voters, and for that reason, then they tended to balance their presidential tickets. Uh, they frequently had a slaveholder and a non-slaveholder, a norther and a southern on the ticket, and they would often alternate. If a, if a, a slaveholder was at the top of the ticket on, in year four, then the slaveholder uh, would be a vice president. A slaveholder would be vice president, and a non-slaveholder would be the presidential candidate in year eight, if you like, the next, the next presidential cycle. Um, and, and doe faces Northern Democrats, usually Democrats, occasionally Whigs, you know, so-called uh, Northern men with Southern principles served a, a valuable role in this system of, of serving as the running mates to white Southerners. And in some cases, you know, passing real, uh, you know, playing a key role as president in passing uh, crucial, uh, legislation, for example, the repeal of the Missouri Compromise by the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 uh, uh, by um, uh, uh, Pierce, Franklin Pierce, uh, uh, and so um, so the the, um, the the combination of the two-party practice, parity in the Senate, um, and these uh, and and the the, the use of doe faces were all uh, pro-slavery practice that went beyond the more or less neutral uh, Constitution. I think it was more pro-slavery than, than anti-slavery, but it certainly had some anti-slavery uh, in the text and structure of the Constitution, but its implementation uh, was far more pro-slavery um, uh, than, than anti-slavery. Between
0: 1858 and
1: 1860... Um, and, and, um, I, I should note that the, the focus on the westward expansion of slavery... Um, uh, also made uh, made white Southern slaveholders concerned about, uh, you know, the, the, the essay for Perry and the Senate made white Southern slaveholders really worried about losing some of their states. There are a couple marginal slave states, Delaware first and foremost among them, who are in danger of becoming free states um, uh, Delaware had a tiny slave population. It's less than 2,000 in 1850. It's less than 1,200 um, in 1860. Um, It was widely expected by Northerners and Southerners to flip from a free state to a slave state, and that made white Southerners all the more anxious about trying to restore parity in the Senate in the 1850s. As it turned out, Delaware would tenaciously hang on to slavery um, until the 13th Amendment, um, despite blandishments by the Lincoln administration during the um, Civil War of, of compensated emancipation, but this did focus. You know, th- th- this helps to explain why what the westward expansion of slavery was so important. It helps to explain why white southern slaveholders in the deep south were worried about the status of slavery in Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland and in Delaware. Uh, they were quite worried about the so-called slave drain, uh, where they would lose these marginal slave states, these border slave states, um, and they would go to the free state column and make it that much easier for. Uh, northern uh, legislators to possibly pass an anti-slavery uh, amendment
0: between 1858 and 1860, how did a sectional party system enervate leadership roles and disrupt the functioning of the three federal branches while the northern majority overcame divisions and began to vote as a block all of the southern minority. Also, why did these doe faces and southern southerners conceive of Lincoln's 1860 election as unconstitutional?
1: Um, The constitutional system uh, really started to feel strained under the sectional – with the rise of a sectional party, with the rise of the um, – first uh, the Liberty Party, then the Free Soil Party, and most importantly the the Liberty Party in 1840 and 44, the Free Soil Party in 1848 and 1852, and most especially by the Republican Party, which of course is the – lineal of, uh, you know, forbear of today's Republican Party. Um, uh, The Republican Party began as a response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Missouri Compromise, um, and these, quote, anti-Nebraska, unquote, um, many of them Whigs, some of them Democrats, uh, were angered by the end of this uh, sectional compromise, which, although it was merely a piece of legislation, had this kind of halo this aura of being actually as essentially part of the Constitution itself, and they formed this so-called sectional party—a party that made the Republican Party um, that made no effort to win white Southern votes. That that was predicated on just turning out um, abolitionists and free soilers, people who opposed slavery and people who opposed the westward expansion of slavery. And the Republican Party in the presidential election of 1856 came within just two states. Uh, Pennsylvania and either Illinois or Indiana of actually winning the presidential election an incredibly auspicious um, beginning for the Republican Party and it just served notice that this long-standing system of 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 national parties balancing their tickets with northern and southern running mates of doe faces helping out southern uh, southerners in the House and the Senate and passing uh, legislation that helped slavery or protected slavery or defended slavery this whole system was in in jeopardy um, and the our, our whole system frankly even now is is dependent on a whole host of of people working well together uh, a modern example would be there are a lot of of things in the Senate that can only uh, proceed or can proceed quickly if, if they have unanimous consent and if they don't have unanimous consent uh, that can cause the whole thing to be a very tedious, long process, right? They have to read every bill, for example, every word of every bill. And a very similar um, uh, crisis, paralysis, innervation w- took place uh, in the eighteen late eighteen fifties. Um, the probably the most famous example of this was the inability to select elite, a speaker uh, for the House of Representatives. Um, if a speaker could not be uh, uh, elected, then the president could not give his uh, address to the joint session of Congress are the, the 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 begin the tradition that we now have in the State of the Union address, um, and so we and and it meant that no bills could be pa- passed. Uh, the whole government was in effect uh, paralyzed, and there were multiple crises in the eighteen fifties, uh, late eighteen fifties, about electing a, a speaker of the House, and this this was uh, sh- showed very clearly the. Um, The breakdown in the two-party system, the breakdown in in the system of having two national parties um, with doe faces helping to uh, cobble together effectively a pro-slavery governing majority. And um, a similar crisis was with with these presidents. And the... uh, and they, the last two presidents before the Civil War were Northern doe faces, uh, Franklin Pierce from New Hampshire and James Buchanan, who, uh, you know, is often listed as perhaps as one of the very worst presidents, uh, a doe face from uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and and they had, uh, you know, th- they were people who were selected largely because of being genially uh, pro-Southern and pro-slavery. Um, and uh, the, the whole system uh, started to break down with very little effective leadership from the presidents. Congress uh, being you know paralyzed and when it did finally organize, you know sputtering, uh, having uh, m- members, especially in the House, but also in the Senate being armed, uh, having nasty confrontations, including fist fights and threats of, uh, of personal violence uh, with firearms and uh and even the the Supreme Court which had a long time held itself up as uh being above the fray the political and sectional fray had had weakened its uh political standing and its regard nationwide by its notorious Dred Scott decision in 1857 um where it very uh, bluntly said that it was unconstitutional for congress for the congress to pass laws that uh, made that, that prohibited the slavery, slaves from being taken into the Western territories, uh, a, a pretty shocking uh, bit of uh, of actually putting their thumb on the political scale. And of course, along the way, uh, Justice Taney, Chief Justice Taney, who wrote the uh, pronounced or spelled Taney, but pronounced Taney, put his thumb on the scale and, and clearly said that people of African descent were not intended by the founders to be citizens and hence were not, uh, even though Uh, There were many, many citizens, uh, black citizens of the United States. Uh, They'd they'd voted, they'd been issued passports, they'd fought in wars, they did all sorts of things that showed that they were citizens. And so, uh, you know, by by that time then, there were real concerns all across um, the American political spectrum about uh, our constitutional form of government, about how it it was uh, acting under the incredible strains of the sectional uh, tensions over the political issue of slavery um, and um, Lincoln's election or the presidential election of 1860 put the you know was the perhaps the the coup de grace, the final blow as I said before the Republicans ran Abraham Lincoln on a free soil platform a platform that was um, that would not let slavery to expand in other words uh, would keep South the south from restoring parity in the Senate um, the Northern Democratic Party, which, or the Democratic Party, if it had stayed united, would, would, would have certainly prevailed. Instead, uh, divided over the westward expansion of slavery, uh, John Breckinridge ran as a Southern Democrat on a slavery in all the all the territories. Stephen A. Douglas ran as a um, on popular sovereignty, which, in other words, allowed the voters of the territories to decide. Um, Lincoln, of course, uh, and there's a fourth party, uh, the Constitutional Union Party. Um, which has, takes no stance on the great issues of the day, but just tries to cash in on a on a reverence for the Constitution, um, uh, and uh, Lincoln wins. He he wins a crushing electoral uh, victory, a great electoral victory, but only uh, le- less than forty uh, percent of the popular vote. Um, and and many uh, Southerners and even some Northern Doe faces regard his election as unfair or unconstitutional or against the spirit of the Constitution, technically legal or constitutional, but really not uh, a disgraceful election. Uh, They did not regard, they regarded it as inherently unfair for a a presidential candidate to be, a president to be elected without any electoral votes from the South. Uh, And in fact, the uh, Republicans weren't even on the uh, on the lists in, in in a majority of the slave states, uh, you couldn't even vote for Lincoln if you wanted to in in the deep South, and he received you know several you know tens of thousands of votes from some of the upper uh, South states uh, like Virginia, uh, Maryland, uh, but but he was clearly a, a president that did not receive a majority of the popular vote, uh, did not receive um, received a plurality of the popular vote, and he was a president who received no electoral votes uh, from the South and who was regarded. As an enemy of the South as a uh, and despite the fact that Lincoln had a rather moderate uh policy on slavery, he was not an abolitionist. Uh, he was a person who regarded slavery personally as a morally evil and he foresaw the end of slavery due to its internal contradictions. He had no anti slavery platform um, He pledged to enforce the laws as they were, including the Fugitive Slave Act of eighteen fifty um, and uh and he certainly um uh, his election, nonetheless, his election was was perceived by many white Southerners as the first of a of a series of increasingly anti-slavery Northern tyrants. Uh, one Southerner, Edwin Ruffin, calls it, it an abolitionist dynasty. Um, and and so it's in response uh, it's in response to this so-called unconstitutional election of Lincoln uh, that white Southerners really start talking about um, secession
0: please briefly trace debates over and opinions on the federal constitution as a compact between the states and the constitution as the supreme law of the land under the supremacy clause. In your brief assessment, please address how and why most antebellum Americans believe that the federal constitution was established by both the people and the states, and how this common belief shifted to debates over the constitutional right to secede in both the North and the South.
1: That's, that's a great question. Um, the Ameri- uh, Constitution, uh, Antebellum Americans had uh, what we might consider um, mixed or incoherent even views about the fundamental nature of the Constitution. There were two main views of it, and we even have this to a certain extent even today. One is a compact of the states, in other words, an agreement between the states. Uh, under this notion, uh, and this was the notion favored by states' rights advocates, um, in the South, and, and some of them in the North, of course, uh, the states were sovereigns, and they ceded some part of their sovereignty to the federal government for limited, narrow, expressed ends that were outlined in the Constitution. For example, the common defense, uh, imposing tariffs, uh, that sort of thing, um, having common weights and measures. Um, but the rest of their sovereignty, they retained um, and since it was a compact, which is a, you know, kind of a fancy word for an agreement, uh, if the federal government overstepped uh, its proper domains, if it started intruding upon or usurping powers that were properly reserved to the states, the states could, in fact, leave the Constitution, could secede, or, possib- or uh, a step before that, they could nullify an unconstitutional law, in other words, make that law uh, null and void within the confines within the borders of that state um the other main school of thought was that the constitution set up a permanent frame of government or a charter of government and the idea w- of that was that the states uh in essence made themselves um or, or the people of the states made those states an inferior sub uh political subset uh that the mm-hmm. states when they joined the union subsumed their sovereignty into national sovereignty and they had only limited powers um, and that uh, this was a permanent union once you joined you couldn't leave um, and that the states weren't sovereign but we the people as the as the preamble uh, set forth um, and I have to say uh, that uh, the Constitution itself um, the founders constitution has uh, since kind of mixed messages uh, about this there there are certainly Arguments to be made on both sides. For example, uh, the preamble clearly says we the people are sovereign, and we the people elect our representatives uh, to the House. And of course, those representatives are uh, help. Uh, uh, you know, we elect people to the um, Electoral College. We elect delegates. Uh, uh, in most cases, uh, in some cases, originally at least, indirectly, and, and by the by the approach of the Civil War, directly uh, delegates to the electors to the Electoral College. Um, and of course people have, uh, rights that, uh, individual people have, have rights that were spelled out in the bill of rights. Um, uh, and so that might make us think it's quite clear that the constitution really is a, a charter or a permanent frame of government, but there's actually quite a bit in the, in the founder's constitution, uh, that, uh, undercuts that they suggests it's a compact of the states. Uh, article seven lays out the ratification clause and that clearly gives, um, the, uh, states, the, you know, the, the, the power to ratify the, the constitution. The constitution wouldn't come into power, in other words, until the state, not the people, but the states uh, said it did. It made the states and it affect so many sovereigns. Also the states, uh, in article one and two, have the states elect the senators. The, the senators uh, until the 17th amendment in the uh, early 20th century, the senators actually represented the states, not the people in those uh, states. And, of course, that part of the Electoral College um, uh, was, in essence, uh, representing the states. And uh, most states by the 1850s actually had direct election of the senators. But uh, for much of the constitutional history, uh, many states had indirect election of senators. In other words, or electors, I should say, electors were appointed. And, of course, uh, before the incorporation of the Bill of Rights, the individual states could and did limit the liberties that the people enjoyed in the Bill of Rights, um, and they, of course, did that until uh, inc- selective incorporation began in the in the mid twentieth century. and And lastly, the states uh, can change the Constitution itself through the amendment clause in Article Five. Um, and and so uh, there were advocates of a of a compact had quite a bit of evidence to support. Uh, this interpretation, and advocates of a charter or permanent frame of government had quite a bit of uh, evidence to support their interpretation. And, of course, part of this uh, seeming um, inconsistency uh, is, is the fact that the Constitution was not written by one person or a small group of people. It was written by a large group of people uh, who made a series of political compromises and who, who didn't necessarily agree on the fundamental nature of, of, of the Constitution. Um and, and it goes even beyond that. The uh the guarantee clause uh gives the federal government the power to intervene in the uh, kind of counterbalancing the amendment clause gives the states the power or the federal government the power to intervene in a state to quote ensure a Republican form of government. Um and uh and then lastly the Tenth Amendment uh states that people, the people and the states have powers that were not. Expressly delegated to the federal government, and those uh, remain. And of course, that seems to support both we the people being sovereign and uh, the states uh, being sovereign. And so, the the Constitution had lots of uh, uh, ha- had uh, you know had arguments on both sides, and and ordinary Americans did not see them as opposites. Uh, the compact. And the charter. In fact, I unearthed many uh letters written um by northerners um and southerners, pro-slavery, anti-slavery, uh doe faces, uh, so forth and so on, where they basically say the constitution is both a compact and a charter. <laughs> um, uh, and, um and um and the and this helps to undergird the idea of whether there's a constitutional right to secede. Um, the, the, uh, the, you know, some white Southerners, advocates, of, states' rights advocates, advocates of the uh, compact theory believed, of course, uh, secession was all along an implicit um, right, one of those uh, powers that, were, uh, that weren't named but were, were retained by the states. They thought it was preposterous that there was an idea that you could join the union but could never leave. Um, I like to joke in my classes that that sounds kind of like the mob, uh, right. You can join the mob, but you can, you, you can't leave the mob. Um, um, and, uh, and, and many uh, and advocates of the permanent frame of government said it was exactly that the States had subsumed their, uh, their sovereignty into the federal government. They could not leave. Um, it was an absolute impossibility, um, when uh, and I found cases of even anti-slavery Northerners ad- admitting there was a, a Southern right to secede. Now, many of them would quibble and say, rather than being a constitutional right, it was in fact a natural, a, a right of natural law. In other words, they, if they were an oppressed person, they could they could go. But that that meant, of course, it was extra constitutional rather than constitutional. But this was an issue that was widely um, debated and discussed um, at, at this time. Um, and uh and once the Civil War began, though uh, opinions in the north hardened and and, and even even most dough faces uh, regarded secession as unconstitutional as a real threat to the rule of law as a as a, a blow to the the model republic, right? Many of them thought there was nothing the Civil war had at stake, the very future of of, of constitutional government, democratic constitutional government, not just in the United States, but in the world. Uh, they believed the United States was the model republic, um, and that if if constitutional government, democratic constitutional government failed the United States, it would fail. You know, the, the, our great example would not be followed by other nations. We would, it, it would uh, all go horribly wrong. Um, and of course, uh, white settlers. Once the war began, even those who had uh, most of those, anyway, even. Uh, for those who had qualms about the niceties of secession, was it constitutional right? Was it a resort of natural law? Was it warranted? Was, it, uh, was this uh, the right response? Um, mo- most of those white Southerners closed ranks and supported secession as being, um, uh, as being the proper remedy, regardless of whether it was a constitutional uh, right uh, or, or a resort of natural law.
0: How and why was the secession crisis a stalemate over federal efforts to maintain union as attempts to compromise versus attempts at coercion? Further, what were examples of Northern and Southern demands in such proposals and how did the lame duck period aggravate the crisis? Uh, the the
1: uh, secession crisis um was both a uh, was was a stalemate um the constitution was silent of course about secession um it didn't say states could secede it didn't say states could not secede um uh it was also silent of course about what to do if states did secede um, and so uh president james Buchanan often i have to say vilified or uh, demonized, uh, was in an incredibly difficult position. Um, he was facing a literally unprecedented crisis and uh, it was not clear what to do. Um, one option, of course, was coercion. He could, at least in theory, claim this was a clear violation of the Constitution secession um, and have, uh, as commander-in-chief, lead uh, the U.S. armed forces into the South and enforce the constitution, the rule of law in those states. Um, that would be, of course, a really momentous step. And Buchanan was quite reluctant to do that, A, because he was a doe face, uh, B, he wasn't sure it would, of course, work, and C, he was worried about, uh, as, a, you know, this happens uh, as he becomes a lame duck president, uh, president uh, uh, the election, of course, takes place in November, and um, and uh, then there's this uh, four month period uh, for uh, until uh, Lincoln takes over when he's merely president elect, and Buchanan quite, um, uh, you know, d- does not want to tie the hands of his successor. He does not want to take in uh, such a strong action that it cannot be undone. He doesn't think that's fair, um, and, and so it's kind of a stalemate. Uh, uh, he he, since he can't, uh, it, since coercion seems to be. Um, Un, uh, untenable he pins his hopes on compromise uh now of course the, the united states congress had passed a series of compromise bills uh, uh, laws about slavery the missouri compromise of 1819 2021 the compromise of 1833 the compromise of 1850 um uh and and those had you know kind of patched over the sectional conflict over slavery um, but Congress, of course, was not as highly functioning as it was um, in 1819, uh, in the 18, 19, 1820s, and the 1830s, or certainly in 1850. Uh, they have the rise of the Republicans. It's compounded by the fact that the president's a lame duck, that uh, a, sec- a so called sectional president was poised to take over. Uh, it was also uh, aggravated by the fact that uh, Congress uh, w- would go out of session just as the new uh, uh, just as the new president would uh, w- would take over. Um, the the, uh, the We've solved many of these problems, some of these problems about the uh, the lame duck period for both Congress and, and the president today, with uh, several amendments and, and changes in practice. But uh, the the U.S. system back then. Um, just was not prepared to handle a crisis like this, and uh, it would take really effective leadership by a president to cobble together some kind of, of compromise. And of course, the other, the other problem was that compromises all uh, were related to uh, the westward expansion of slavery and the protection of slavery. And they're quite simply, it was a real stretch to get the compromise of 1850, 10, 11 years earlier. In fact, many historians regard this as an armistice because there was very little compromising done. Just uh, a, f- a small group of swing voters uh, helped make the difficult votes uh, uh, possible uh, for both the pro-North uh, provisions and the pro-Southern uh, provisions. Um, and so all these, um, all these efforts uh, undercut the ability for compromise. There was not strong presidential leadership. The president was a lame duck. Uh, the parties were divided. Um, they were, uh, they could not agree. The South basically asked for um, constitu- provisions that would protect slavery from a constitutional amendment. Um, even though, uh, frankly, we now know, uh, you know, I argue very clearly, I think that those weren't necessary. Um, and the North of course could not agree t- to grant it. And, and so uh, neither coercion, nor Northdale, uh, uh, nor compromise w- was able to to resolve uh, the secession crisis. Um, and you know the the various proposals to resolve the sectional crisis, uh, the the crit- so called Crittenden Compromise, uh, the Washington Peace Plan. Uh, these all had elements of compensation for for slaveholders whose fugitives. Uh, were not properly rendered to them under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, um, uh, protections against you know, a, a, a additional southern states, slave states, so that they could restore parity in the Senate, um, uh, protections against uh, anti, uh, anti-slavery legislation, all those sorts of things. And those were just the sorts of things uh, that uh, certainly Republicans, but even some uh, Democrats weren't prepared uh, to grant. Uh, and, and so, uh, at the very end, you know, I, I argue that the Constitution was unable to resolve the political dispute over slavery. Uh, the South was a political minority; it wanted to protect its uh, economic, social uh, institution of, of slavery. Um, and over time, the North became increasingly less uh, willing to 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 agree to abide by slavery. And the Constitution was unable, uh, for a variety of reasons, to resolve this uh, dispute. Uh, the two-party system um, uh, was not nimble enough. Uh, the the meetings of Congress and the assumption of power by the new president were not seamless enough. Uh, the The whole structure of the of the federal government was unable, uh, when push came to shove. To resolve this issue, and that's ultimately why we we have the Civil War. That's why I argue the the Constitution um, the Constitution's inability to resolve the political dispute over slavery causes the Civil War, um, and the Civil War settles these matters uh, to, to a great extent. Um, not many people today argue the Constitution is a compact of the states. Um, the not many people argue, at least not many uh, uh, you know political leaders and, and commentators argue that secession uh, is a uh, proper remedy for aggrieved minorities, uh, political minorities in, in states. Um, the Constitution uh, finally has an anti-slavery amendment um, that that begins the process of fundamentally changing the founder's Constitution. Um, and short on, you know, quickly on its heels, we'll, we'll see the 14th and the 15th Amendments fundamentally reshaping uh, the relationship between the federal government uh, and the states and the federal government's interest in protecting uh, certain groups of people from discrimination that had for decades been um, certainly perfectly constitutional and business uh, as usual. Um, and And it reflects, I think, in in the end, the triumph of the jurisprudence of the living constitution of american people of the American people changing the Constitution to bring it into line uh, with their uh, changing beliefs and preferences and practices. Uh, I think that was that's key to our constitution, which is the, of course the longest standing and serving constitution to having such a long span. You know Francis had five different constitutions in the span of our one uh, constitution. And part of, part of this, the trick to allowing our Constitution to grow and expand with the Constitution is this de facto adoption of this living Constitution uh, jurisprudence. It's allowed the United States to grow from a small settler uh, community of about three or four million on the eastern seaboard to becoming a superpower uh, that spans the entire continent of North, uh, of North America from the Atlantic to the Pacific, has over 300 million people. Uh, incredibly diverse population, ethnically, racially, uh, religiously, uh, and, and, and so forth and so on. Um, and it's, I think, of course, uh, how we uh, will have to uh, proceed uh, in this American experiment in uh, constitutional uh, democratic self-government.
0: Well, thank you for being on the show today, Professor Conlin. On behalf of the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp. The book is The Constitutional Origins of the American Civil War, out earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Please tune in next time.